I read a recent article on what motivates people. And this article dealt with six different areas of motivation that uh, people live with in the United States. Their highest uh, motivations as far as achieving and those kinds of things. The first one, believe it or not, people are motivated because they want money or rewards. I know that's a big shock, all right? They're motivated to earn money. Secondly, there is motivation that comes from a desire to be the best. There's motivation to help others. There's motivation in power and fame. Some, some leaders there, they're saying they want to achieve great power and authority and fame, so they have great motivation. Others, it's recognition. They, uh, they want to be ultimately proven that they are doing the right thing and that they are right. And then the last one was just personal passion. They, they just want to be a consistent achiever. What I found interesting in that article, and it obviously was a secular magazine, was that there was no mention of motivation due to our faith. There was no thought of, of the Lord or uh, Jesus or his coming or anything like that. And that is what we find for Paul as one of the key motivations of his life. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse number 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verse number 17 and read down through verse number 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And with that, let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your word and thank you for the truth in it. And God, speak to us today and may we hear from you and be motivated to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the city of Thessalonica, Paul, as he came into that city, was only there for three weeks, three Sabbaths. Some people believe maybe he was there a little bit longer on the outside doing some, some work, but we find that he is in Thessalonica for a very short period of time, and then he is run out of town. While Paul was there, there were some Jews that were came to know Jesus, that were saved. There were some Gentiles, some Greeks, and some uh, leading women of that uh, city that all came to know Jesus, as Acts chapter 17 tells us. But then the riot forms and Paul is run out of town, and he's wondering, how are these folks doing? And so he sends Timothy, we're going to see that in First Timothy, or in, in First Thessalonians chapter 3, but, but as he's concerned about them, he shares with them, look, I really long to see you face to face. I want to lay my eyes on you. That's exactly what he says. He says, man, I want to be with you. But though I'm not with you in presence and face to face, you are in my heart. 
You're with me in my heart. I'm still carrying you. I have this great love and affection for you. I'm thankful for what God has done in you. And because of that, I want you to know, man, it's not because I didn't try, but Satan hindered me from coming. As we look at Paul's life and ministry, whether it be affliction or persecution, we find that Paul continued a motivated life to live for Jesus and share Jesus with others because of changed lives and because Christ is coming. Paul was motivated by this truth around him that said, Jesus is coming. You're going to be our crown of rejoicing when Jesus comes. You are are the reason. Lives are being changed. Jesus is coming. So we're staying motivated. Now, Paul didn't do this in a vacuum or in an easy situation. Paul was in a very difficult place where he even said that Satan hindered us. And as we think about our life as believers, I want us to know and understand that believers, we are in a real battle. We are in a real spiritual battle. There is a real unseen spiritual battle that is going on around us. And believers are in this spiritual battle and we face this every day. And not only are we in a spiritual battle, but believers have a real enemy. Notice Paul calls him out. He says that Satan hindered us. Now when we look at the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says this, be sober, be vigilant, be on your guard. He says, for the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. James in James James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we see that Paul, that Peter, and that James all affirm that we have a real enemy called Satan. And Jesus even faced him himself. Passages like Matthew chapter Four, we have a real enemy and he is seeking to hinder the work of the gospel that we see here. But I think as we look at the overall picture of this enemy, that there are five major tools that the devil uses in the, in the working of this world around us in which he seeks to cause harm. He wants to be a roaring lion and they say that a lion will will sneak up just like your your house cat, you know, sneak up real quiet, wait real patiently. And then at that last moment when they're going to attack, they will roar before they devour. So we face a real enemy. But I think there's five tools that the devil ultimately tries to use. First one is deception. Deception. We find in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent comes to them and says, did God really say that you can't eat of all the trees? Did God really say? Well, it's, well, he said that we could eat of all the trees except this one. Or if we eat it, and Eve adds to God's word and says, or if we touch it, we will surely die. And in Genesis 3, 4, the serpent says, you will surely not die. Absolute deception. 
He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like God, knowing good or evil, and then gives an unrealistic picture of their perspective. But he is a deceiver. He is called the father of lies. He is a deceiver. And he will lie and trick people and and fool people and do his best to lead people away from the Lord. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 19, Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower and he goes out and he sows God's word. But that falls on the path that says, that the evil one comes and tries to snatch it away. He wants to deceive. He wants to hurt. But not only is there the picture of deception, we find that there's also the picture of a tool of temptation. He uses temptation. Now, we we know that with Eve, there was the the tempting of of saying, "You, you can do this. You can do your own thing. Jesus faced temptation in Matthew chapter 4, where the devil told him, hey, Jesus, you're hungry. You fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Why don't you take these stones and just turn them into bread? Hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to the pinnacle of the temple and just throw yourself off? Hey, Jesus, why don't you bow before me and I'll give you everything that your eyes can see? There's temptation. But notice with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, We're just about five verses later from from where we closed in verse number 20 in the new chapter. It says this, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. What he's saying is, look, I wanted to check on you because I didn't want my seed as it was sharing the gospel to be taken by the evil one. For some of you, you think this, hey, Following Jesus is hard. Some of my friends won't hang around me anymore in Thessalonica because now I'm not going to the immoral things anymore. I'm not partying anymore. I'm not going to worship idols anymore. And, and, And now I'm following Jesus. And then the tempter comes and says, what are you doing that for? Paul don't really care about you. Paul's not even been back. That, that, that salvation prayer, that, that didn't really mean anything. You, you don't really, you don't really need to trust Jesus. Just listen, it's, They're having so much more fun. Why don't you just go back and party? Eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want. Have fun. Look, it's so much easier. It's so much more fun. You won't have affliction. You won't have persecution. You won't have all the incitement. Your family will receive you. Your friends will receive you. Just do what you want. Live how you want. There's that temptation. And dare I say today that many who have grown up hearing the truth or sometime in their student ministry, they heard the truth of the gospel and they found it easier to go back to the world because they didn't want to have to stand against the current of culture, the current of immoral society. And so they just give up and they go along. There's a temptation there. Not only is there deception and Not only is there temptation, but there's destruction. In John 10, 10, it says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Destroy. For when we look around our nation today, we see destruction. You look at the the promise, hey man, you just try the alcohol and drugs and, and you can escape from all of this heartache and hardship you're feeling. You can get a buzz. And before you know it, a life is destroyed. And it's happening hour by hour by hour across the great United States where 
people have access to so much stuff, but they can't find any meaning. Hey, husband. That girl at work. Man, you can flirt with her a little bit. Oh, now, now you're going to have a fair... Look, you, you deserve the right to have fun. And a marriage is destroyed. And a family is destroyed. And a legacy is destroyed. He is the tempter who comes at us and then he destroys us in the process. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can destroy the testimony of a believer, if he can destroy the family of a believer, if he can destroy the life of a believer, he will. And those in the world and around us today, if he can destroy them, that is his ultimate aim and goal. Next we find one of his tools is the tool of accusation. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. I find it interesting that this is kind of how this lines up. The devil tempts us and says, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then finally you give into the temptation and then he says, you call yourself a Christian and you do that? You act like that? You did that? You said that? You were there? You, you acted like that? And he is the accuser of the brethren. And for many people, and many that I've talked to are holding on to things that they did five or 10 or 20 years ago. I've had people in my office and I've said, have you told anybody else this? And they say, no, and they've carried baggage for year after year after year. And the accuser of the brethren has constantly beat them up. Can I tell you that once we come to know Jesus, Micah seven nineteen says that God casts our sins into the depths of the sea, that Jeremiah 31, 34, says that he remembers our sin no more and that John the Baptist, when he pointed to Jesus, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. You don't have to hold on to the guilt anymore. If you've come to that place of repentance, you don't have to hold on to the guilt anymore. But have you come to the place of repentance? The accuser of the brethren, he accuses us before God Day and night, it says in Revelation 12, 10, but he also accuses us within our own heart. And there are things and sins that we have committed that God has long since forgotten and wiped away. And he says, look, I have buried that past. Behold, all things are new in Christ. And the evil one keeps fishing those up into our heart and our mind again. That's the work of the devil. Then he has the tool of discouragement. And that's what we find here. Notice back in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 18, Paul said, we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and again I wanted to come. But Satan hindered us. We constantly were discouraged because of the work of Satan in hindering us. He hindered. He blew out the bridge. He set up a blockade. He kept us from coming. Paul was probably fighting discouragement, saying, man, I want to go. I want to go and be with this church. And the church is saying, man, we wish Paul was here. And there's the challenge in our life. When there are challenges and we're in the spiritual battle that we can get discouraged. Some of you are there today. Some of you are facing discouragement over any number of issues. 
It could be a job or, or uh, a lack of job. It could be in a relationship or in finances or maybe in your own physical health. There are many today, and especially over the last 20 months with all of the corona COVID stuff going on, there's just been this, this overwhelming sense of discouragement that the evil one has put down upon so many. But here's what we find. Joshua chapter one and verse number nine. The Lord speaking to Joshua says this, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you know what the cure to discouragement is? It's the presence of God in your life. It's recognizing that he's with me and I'm with him and that no matter what the circumstance is going on, I am in his hand and God is seeing things through. I do not understand them, but Romans 8.28 tells me and reminds me that God is working all things together for good to those who know him, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of things in life we don't understand, but there is one thing we can't understand. God's with us. Be courageous. God's with you. You've not taken a breath alone this week. You've not taken a step alone this week. You have not faced a battle alone this week. God is with you. Well, we're in a battle. We have a real enemy, but we also have real resources. We have real spiritual resources for us as believers to use as we face the battle of life. We've got to move through them very quickly. First off, when we think about the, the resources that we have, first off, we have the Son of God. First John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Paul would say in Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If Christ lives in me and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, then I recognize that I face spiritual battles with the power of Christ, the one who conquered the grave, the one who defeated the devil. I face battles with him. Not only do I have the son of God, but I have the word of God. What did Jesus do when he was tempted in Matthew chapter four? He went to the word of God in Matthew four, four. He said, he said this, listen. Man's not going to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God, thirdly, the spirit of God. And John 14, 26 and John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit is referred to as in, in the New King James, the helper. Some of your Bibles may say the comforter. The word in Greek is the word paraclete. The word kaleo means to call. And the, the word, the prefix para means to come alongside. He's the one who's called alongside to be with us. I love the way the word comforter is used because the etymology of the word comforter is that it comes from the word forte. Those of you who know music, forte means with strength. That when you play forte, you're playing with strength. And the prefix C-O-M, come, means with. The Holy Spirit comes alongside with strength. You have the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 11, he's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He is in you and lives within your life. That's power. That is power. Then, fourthly, we have the armor of God. We have the armor of God. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the armor of God, that in the evil day you may be able to withstand and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having the belt of truth girded around your waist, having the breastplate of righteousness in place, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying with all prayer and supplication in Christ Jesus. We have the armor of God. We have the family of God. As believers, when you face spiritual battle, you don't have to face it alone. God didn't say, go out and be a lone ranger. No, he gave us the church so that we could gather together, so that we could be together, so that we would stand together, so that when you have to go into battle, you know, hey, I've got a whole family that's going to encourage, pray, hold me up, hold me accountable. I've got a family. And then we have victory in God. First Corinthians chapter 15 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory in Christ Jesus. We have victory. And then he goes on to say, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us victory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Paul's saying this, while you're in the battle, your labor is not in vain. Which then brings us right to the second thought. Hey, we have a real spiritual battle that we're in. But while we're in that spiritual battle, believers can make a real spiritual difference in the lives of others. We can make a real spiritual difference. Notice down with me as we think about believers making a spiritual difference. Notice in verse number 18. Paul said that he longed to come to them. Then verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul would find motivation to continue to fight and share the gospel and work forward. He would find motivation in changed lives. He says, you're our hope, our joy, our crown. You're our crown and our glory, he says in verse 20. What was Paul saying? Look, man, I just got beat up in Philippi, locked in the stocks, held overnight, and yet I went down from Amphipolis to Apollonia, down to to Thessalonica, still bearing the scars. Why did I do that? Paul probably, with a sore back, would say, guys, can I tell you what happened? They beat me and they put me in jail in Philippi. Paul and my buddy Silas here, we were praying and we were singing And that Philippian jailer opened up his life to Jesus. And then his whole family came to know Jesus. And I've come to tell you today, through the scars and the affliction and the persecution and the threats of death, I've seen people come to know Jesus and I'm not quitting. 
You're our hope, our joy, our crown. It was this group of believers in Thessalonica who were persuaded by the message of the gospel that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and that Jesus is the Messiah. And their changed lives stood as a testimony that says, I'm going to keep pressing on. Is there one more? Is there one more? Can I strive to see one more come to know Jesus? I want to see one more come to know Jesus. Paul was motivated by changed lives. There was a man in World War II. His name was Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a pacifist. He was of the Seventh-day Adventist religion and didn't even carry a gun. But when the U.S. Army medic was needed in the Battle of Okinawa on a place called Hacksaw Ridge... He would put himself at risk to save 75 other men. You've heard the story about the storm that swept up over the ocean and the little boy after the storm came out and there were starfish all over the beach and and he threw one in and someone said, look, you're you're never going to make a difference with these hundreds of thousands of starfish that are washed up on the beach. And he picks up another starfish and he throws it into the ocean and he says, but I made a difference in that one. And he picks up another and says, I made a difference in that one. And I made a difference in that one. Is there one person in your life, in your influence, that over these next days, weeks, months, that you'd seek to make a difference in their life, even though it may cost your time, your effort, your energy. Maybe there might be some ridicule, some persecution that comes with it. Paul would say, I'm motivated by changed lives. But not only was Paul motivated by changed lives, Paul was motivated because he knew Christ is coming. Notice what he says In verse number 18, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? This is a constant theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Jesus is coming. He said it in verse number 10, that these Thessalonian believers, they were waiting for his son from heaven. Now, he says, we're going to receive the crown of rejoicing at Christ's coming. So what is it about Christ's coming? I think there's three aspects of Christ's coming that he brings out here. First off, there's the presence of Christ. Christ's presence. Jesus is coming. It doesn't say he's sending angels. It doesn't say that he's he's just going to sweep us up. It says that Christ is coming. Jesus is coming. As a young girl at about six months of age, Fanny Crosby had some drops put in her eyes by a misguided doctor who caused her to go blind. And from her life as a six-month-old baby through uh, her adult years, she was blind her whole life until she died. But she was a prolific hymn writer. And she was asked one time and then composed a hymn about, when, when you see Jesus, I mean, what is... How are you even going to know it's him? And she wrote this, I shall know him. I shall know him and redeemed by his side, I will stand. I shall know him. 
I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. Jesus is coming. We're going to experience his presence. It will be unparalleled to anything that we have ever experienced before. It will be it will be totally out of our realm of even trying to comprehend what it will be like when we see him. Then there's Christ's victory. Christ is coming because he wins. You, you realize that, don't you? That the, the reason that Christ is coming because he's coming as the winner. He's coming as the one who, who will reign supreme, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ is coming. He's coming. He's coming. And he is coming victorious. Today, as we face our spiritual battles, we, we do not fight for victory. Christ has already won the victory through an empty tomb, through a cross where he died to pay the penalty for our sin, the empty tomb, through the gift of salvation. He's already provided victory. We're not fighting for it. We're fighting from it. Christ has won. We're fighting from victory. And one day he's going to appear as victor. Christ is coming. His presence, his victory, but then his reward. Notice, back in verse number 18 with me, he says, what is our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Christ's reward. This is often called the crown of rejoicing. It's sometimes called the soul winner's crown. It's a crown. It's a reward. Now, now listen, we all get to heaven the same way. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. No one is going to work their way to heaven. No one can work their way to heaven. But once we come to know the Lord in our life, then the Lord says, look, I want to encourage and motivate you to live for Jesus. And this is what's going to happen. There's going to be rewards given on that day. There's rewards that are coming to those that serve me faithfully. And this reward is the crown of rejoicing. But here's the truth of it, and please understand. If we're going to receive a crown in heaven, we will receive it because we earned it on earth. That means it's something that we aim for. There's a motivation that God gives us to work and to live and to love and to share so that we'll be able to receive that reward. And hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Desmond Doss, as he saved 75 men on what was known Hacksaw Ridge in the Battle of Okinawa, was one of 431 World War II uniformed military personnel to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now listen, there were 16 million men in uniform in World War II. 431 of them received the Congressional Medal of Honor. On October the 12th, 1945, Harry S. Truman, our president right here from Missouri, gave Desmond Doss, this one who had saved 75 men, he gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor, and this is what he said. I'm proud of you. You really deserve this. And then he said this. I consider this a greater honor than being president.
the greatest honor that any of us could ever hope to receive in life would be to hear those words. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Through the affliction, through the persecution, through the challenges, through the discouragement, through the times when you felt alone, through the times when you struggled in silence and you didn't even know how to articulate your issues with anyone else in the whole wide world except to pour out your heart before God. It will be worth it all to hear those words. Well done. I pray you'll hear them. And I pray that you will stay motivated to live for Jesus despite the battle that's going on around us and we're all in it, that we would continue to seek to see lives changed and to look for Jesus coming. And with that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I I pray that as Paul shared these words with the church at Thessalonica, Lord, that, that we would be motivated to live for you. God, there are people here that maybe have received your word, but now they are, they are just off course. Maybe they question even the faith. Lord, you know where they are and you know what's going on and you know why. God, draw people to yourself today. May Jesus be exalted today. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction today. And Lord, may our church have that aim as individuals and a corporate body to hear those words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.